How's everyone doing? Good. Turn to First Thessalonians. We're going to finish up chapter three today. We're in First Thessalonians, chapter three, starting in verse eleven. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you know all things, that you are in control, that you are powerful. We thank you, Father, that you bestow upon us mercy and grace that we don't deserve. We thank you, Father, that you love us, that you care for us. We thank you, Father, that uh, the riots and craziness across our country has been kept to a minimum this past week. Lord, continue to grow our trust and faith in you. Continue to remind us that you are on the throne. Father, we pray for our kids and and their practice now. Lord, would you quicken their hearts uh, to be set on you and on your word, that you would save them at an early age. And God, we want to have a, a passion for you and a passion for your word. Open up our eyes to see things in the word, things that have that have always been there, uh, but we just haven't seen clearly, Lord. So open our eyes to see those things clearly today for your glory. Amen. All right, well, uh, for my two older boys, basketball season kicked off this past Thursday with uh, a tournament uh, right over off of K-Springs in 70. Um, Tons of basketball, and um, it was an awesome, awesome time. All the teams did great. One of the things that I always thought when I was younger and a teen, I did sports uh, growing up, and I kind of always like wondered to myself, um, like, why, did, you know, my parents, they're just driving me around all the time and watching these games, like, they got to be just like bored out of their mind, like, I'm actually getting to participate in the sport, and they're just watching, they're just watching. Um... I realized once I became a parent and my kids started doing things and activities, like I was totally wrong. And that I just, I took, I take and took enjoyment just in seeing them do things. Even if you think of like, uh, like the quintessential example of, of a parent watching their kid take their first steps, right? Like it's like this monumental achievement. And you're all excited about it. But, um, so... I just had a great time this weekend just watching my kids play basketball and, um, and seeing them and, and what God's done just with their athletic abilities. And I never thought years and years ago when I wasn't a parent that I'd ever think like that. Even like when my daughter, she's an amazing artist. When, she, when I see her working on something, I mean, I just take like great joy and pride in, in what she's done, but also in who she is. And I think it's a good example for us of how 
and we need to be reminded of, that's how the Father looks at us. And a lot of times, like, I take joy just in seeing my kids, like, take joy in life. Like, if they're having a good time, when their friends come over and they're hanging out in the basement, like, I'm encouraged by that. Because I know that they're enjoying the good things in life that God has for them. And when I see them out there on the court having a good time and giving high fives to their friends and excited, like, that, that encourages me. Why? Because they're enjoying what I believe God has for them. And, and God wants us to have good things. He wants us to enjoy life. And he wants us to enjoy our relationship with him. The same thing is true with us. Like, God, God is excited just by the fact that we're going about our daily life and we're enjoying the world that he's created for us. And when we participate in it, um, <clears throat> when we're walking in his ways, like he takes delight. When we're enjoying just the things that he's created, sometimes for some of us, that might just be getting together with some friends and, and having a lunch or a dinner. That delights him. He's encouraged. Why? Because, because we're his children. I can see a, a drawing made by a kid who's a great artist, and I'm like, man, that's a great great drawing. But then I can see a drawing you know, made by my, by my daughter, and I'm like, man, that thing is amazing. Like, look at that thing. <clears throat> and so, I mean, I feel like that's the Lord with his children. Like, he sees us as his children, which we are, and he's excited to see the things that we do. Um, Justin, you know, my daughter doesn't necessarily, she draws pictures for me, but she might not draw that particular picture. I'm still excited by that picture. I'm still encouraged by it. Same thing, you know, my kids, they're not playing basketball for me. I'm, I'm encouraged and excited to see them playing it. I'm excited to see what God's doing in their life, but I'm excited to see them enjoying God's good gifts that he has given. Things like recreation even. Things like entertainment. Things like leisure. Those are gifts that God gives to us. Even in parents can relate you know especially when they're younger sometimes you just you know slip into their their room at night or open the door you just kind of watch them sleep a little bit right and you're like that that's mine like that's my kid you know and you pray a prayer over them and, and hope god's blessings over them but you are privileged by your kids same thing with the lord and i think a lot of times what happens friends is you know, God wants, we, we end up thinking like, oh, I got to do this for the Lord. I got to do this for, and he wants us to do things. That's, that's true. But we got to do this or that. And God is just pleased. If you're his child, God's pleasing you for who you are. Think about that. If you're pleasing your children for who they are, the correlation is there for how God looks at you. He is pleased simply because you are his child. I don't love any of my children any less or any more based on what they do. Now, I might be more, you know, happy with certain activities they're doing or things they're doing, but, but my love for them is the same. My love for them is the same. Each kid. Same with God, okay? You can't do anything to make God love you anymore. If you could, then it wouldn't be uh, an eternal or infinite love that he has for you. He loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you. Because he's chosen you, and you're his son or daughter. Our relationship with God is the most important thing. It really is. Understanding who he is, how he works, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do, those are extremely important in us tending our relationship with him. And when we've kind of looked uh, a couple weeks ago at um, these, these few verses 
and uh, what we're seeing of, of the deity of Christ, the clarity of the Trinity. I wanted to look at a couple more things in these passages, but I want for us to keep in mind like the idea that what we're doing here and in looking at this is helping tend to our own relationship with the Lord. If we want to know the Lord, if we want to grow our relationship with the Lord, then we want to know who the Lord truly is. What he says about himself, and we want to know that with clarity and certainty. So one of the things that we see when we talk about the Father, we talk about the Son, and we talk about the Spirit, is they have uh, unique roles and activities. But one of the things is that when we look at 1 Thessalonians, and keep in mind, this is... Uh, probably the first, maybe the second letter that, that Paul wrote that's in the New Testament. So um, a lot of times, and I'm going to get into it a little bit later, but people try to argue different things about the Trinity kind of being forced into the Scriptures at a later date. That's not accurate. That's not true at all. We're seeing this in First Thessalonians. We looked at it last time, but we look at it, we look, we're going to look at it this time. I want you to look at, at the very first chapter of First Thessalonians. And I want you to notice the unique relationship that the Father and the Son have. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now notice something here. The Thessalonian church is grounded in whom? It's grounded in God. It's founded in Him. Their identity comes from Him. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. But notice also, it's grounded in Jesus, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just in Jesus, which that'd be enough, but the Lord, there's a title, and Christ, there's a title. We get two titles there. In the very first verse of 1 Thessalonians, uh, we just hear that term Lord and Christ so much, it just we just kind of can easily pass it by sometimes. But in this very first verse, he's describing deity to Jesus, Lord. Lord. And same with Christ. The, the, the messianic title, Christ, uh, had an, an aspect of, of divinity to it. Even the Jews had some aspect of divinity that they realized with the coming Messiah. Now think about this for a moment. If you substitute any person's name for Jesus in this verse, you, you quickly see how blasphemous it would be. You know, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and, you know, I don't know, Justice Witty. <laughs> Sorry, bud, I'm picking on you today. <clears throat> That'd be craziness. That'd sound weird. Any person's name. Put your own name in there for a second. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and insert your name. Like, that'd be craziness. It'd be craziness. So you substitute any person's name and you quickly see how inappropriate it is. Why isn't it blasphemous to do so with Jesus' name? Just because he's a great guy? Because he died on the cross? Look, if you're going to put your name in the same sentence with God and link activity and action and identity with God, guess what? You better be God. Which makes sense in this case because Jesus is God. See, even these earliest epistles written by Paul, they show us this belief of the divineness of Christ. I had a friend um, years ago, you know, he said Jesus wasn't declared God by the church until the church council, you know, around 300 AD or something like that. Here's the thing. Um, 
when we talk about the, the beliefs of, of early Christianity and its doctrine, beliefs were universally held, but not necessarily formalized. Okay? Universally held, but not necessarily formalized. Let me give you an example. Did you know that um, Liberty Church, this church right here, never makes any mention in our handbook that it's a sin to use cocaine? Not any of our doctrinal statements or handbooks. Now, is it safe to assume then that Liberty is okay with cocaine use? Now, what if you found out that the church was started in 1996, which it was, and, and then in 2011, we came out with a statement saying it was inappropriate for Christians to use cocaine. Now, would you then say, wow, for 15 years, Liberty held the position um, that cocaine use was acceptable? And it wasn't until 15 years later that they finally were like, oh, no, it's not. No, of course not. You know, likely what happened is some, 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 someone came into our midst, um, you know, maybe a college student, maybe an older, older couple, could be anyone. You know, they started arguing and trying to convince people of something, something unbiblical, right? Something that you'd probably think, oh, everyone kind of knows that. And people were being swayed and convinced that maybe that was accurate or true. So then, what position does that put the church in? What position does that put the leadership in? A, a, a place where they have to respond, right? They have to make a statement. Now, the church leadership would obviously try to deal with, with that person on a more individual level, but if, if that didn't work and that person continued to propound things like that, then something would have to be done. I mean, this is similar to what happened with the early doctrine of the church. The church was solid in its beliefs. Rock solid. It was only when someone challenged the current beliefs, the biblical beliefs, the beliefs that Jesus taught, that the apostles taught, that we find in the Scriptures, that the church was put in a position where it needed to formally respond. That's what you see occurring through the first roughly 300, 400, 500 years of Christianity. A heretic comes along, tries to propagate some wacky view that has never been believed before, and the church says, we don't believe that. So what do they do? They codify it and through a council. They make a statement. It does not mean that they didn't believe it up until that point. They've just formalized that belief in an official way. So <clears throat> this doctrine is something that we see in Scripture rather clearly. Even in just one book, we can see it pretty clearly like we saw last time, like we're seeing this time Notice also in the passage we read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 3, we see that the Father and the Son share divine attributes. Verse 11, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now we looked at, um, the last time we looked at this passage, we looked at, these are prayers. Verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, these are prayers that are being prayed uh, the key word, I think most versions have it, is that word may. Now, may our God and Father, verse 11, and may the Lord, verse 12, verse 13, so that he may. Those are indicating um, in the Greek rather clearly that these are prayers that are being offered. So we noticed last time, uh, man, Paul's directing them 
to pray to Jesus. Well, I mean, you don't pray to something or someone unless they're God. So they're praying to Jesus. But also notice here in verse 11, what is Jesus doing? Directing their way to him. Not just providentially, which is true. Not just sovereignly, which is true. But literally, he's doing this using an omnipotence which would only be ascribed to God himself. It would take a power that only a deity had to get you from one place to another in a way if there was a wall that was preceding you from going there, if there was an obstruction not allowing you to get there. The prayer is, may the Lord direct our way to you. Hey, Jesus, we need you to get us to the Thessalonians. Right now, we can't get there. We need you to intervene. The all-powerful. Use your omnipotence. So they're doing this together. God and Jesus working with the divine attribute of sovereignty and omnipotence to get the apostles where they need to go. Now you won't find any other person, think about this for a moment, you won't find any other person specifically named in Scripture where there is activity like this with the Father. You just won't. Where one person specifically named and they're doing some type of divine attribute that only God can do. Why? Because if they're doing a divine attribute, they're God. Well, this is the case. Direct our way to you. Yes, Jesus really can do that. Not a mere man, but the God-man. How does he have the power to do that? Well, he'd have the power if he was God, which he is. Let's look at the Spirit for a moment. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to notice that the Spirit is distinct from the Father. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 Therefore, whoever dis disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So there's a distinction there between God and the Spirit. Now, modalism, uh, a heresy from long ago, still present today, even people that name Christianity uh, claim this uh, false heresy, but they say that the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Spirit. There's just one person. Well, that, that doesn't make sense. Even you kind of run into some kind of odd thinking if you think about Jesus, you know, when he's praying to the Father. I mean, you have a subject-object distinction. The Son is doing an action towards the Father. They're, they're clearly separate. Over throughout the New Testament, you even see where all three of them are mentioned in the same verse, doing different actions or having different things ascribed to them. Here, the note is that Paul distinguishes God the Father from the Holy Spirit. And this, this Spirit is a person. He's not just a force. He's a person. I remember years ago, uh, we were having some Jehovah Witnesses come to our house. We were sharing with them and um, had them turn to Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, the story where they lie. Uh, but who do they lie to? If you look there in Acts 5, it says they lie to the Holy Spirit. My question to the Jehovah Witnesses was, like, how do you lie to it because they believe the Holy Spirit is just a force, an impersonal force? How do you lie 
to a force. You can't. You can only lie to people, to <clears throat> beings. In this case, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a person. Notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5. I want you to see this. You've probably heard this before. Verse 19. Just, we get all these little short little snippet commands at the end. We're going to have a lot of fun going through them when we get to it in 1 Thessalonians 5. But verse 19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. What's that idea mean? Like you're shutting down the work of what the Spirit is doing in your midst. Listen to this. He responds to any actions that displease him. Think about that for a moment. He responds to any actions that displease him. You can quench the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit, right? Ephesians talks about that. You can grieve the Spirit. But here, you can quench the Spirit. You can do certain things to please him and certain things to displease him. And he responds to actions of ours that displease him. I remember I was at my... Uh, cousin's uh, confirmation at, at the Lutheran church I grew up in. This was years ago. And, um, and, and the pastor, it was a lady pastor, the pastor was, was preaching. And in the sermon, she's talking about the Spirit, and she refers to the Spirit as a she. And I just kind of like, you know, went like that. I was like, well, that's interesting. <clears throat> so afterwards, um, they had like a, a luncheon at my, at my uncle and aunt's house, and so I um, just happened to be seated next to her. And so I was like, I noticed in the sermon that you called the Holy Spirit a she. <laughs> and she's like, oh, man, I'm glad you were listening. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> and she said, well, you know, the early church fathers sometimes referred. And I was like, she kind of went on a little bit. And I was like, you know, ma'am, uh, I'm not really interested in what the early church fathers believed. They believed whatever they wanted. Some believed some really crazy stuff. I'm interested in what the scriptures say. And the scriptures never whatsoever indicate that the Spirit is a she. If anything, they give the exact opposite indication. I said, uh, in the book of John, uh, John, you know, like one of the closest disciples to Jesus, the beloved he actually goes against Greek grammar in order to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is a he. I mean, you can see it right there in the Greek in John. So he's, he's going along. He's going along. Now, some of you guys, if you haven't had language, it might not make as much sense. But if, you, if you've had some Spanish, a lot of people have had some Spanish or maybe some French, you know, you have like masculine nouns and you got feminine nouns, right? Well, um, in Latin and Greek, you actually have masculine feminine, and neuter nouns. Um, <clears throat> having one or the other or any of those doesn't necessarily indicate necessarily anything about that particular thing. If, if, uh, if, if the table is, is a feminine noun, it doesn't mean like, oh, they thought like of tables as like females or something. That would be an inappropriate way to understand languages. <clears throat> but the, the word for the spirit is actually a, a neuter word. And so what John does there is he actually takes... The definite article, there's definite article for feminine, for masculine and neuter. He actually takes the masculine definite article and attaches it to the word spirit. Specifically emphasizing that the spirit, really there's the personhood, but also that the spirit 
is, is a he. There's, there's this idea here that Paul's wanting us to make sure we understand that, that the Spirit is distinct from the Father, but also that the Spirit is a person. Friends, you know, if we think about it, we can shut down the work of the Spirit. We can. We can quench the Spirit. That's why it's important to walk in the Spirit. Um, I, I've seen this happen in church services. You, you can tell that, that the Spirit is doing something, and then someone gets up or, or, or prays. I mean, it's just totally off-kilter from what's going on. I've seen it in prayer meetings. I've seen it in life groups. Quenching of the Spirit. Them not walking with the Spirit to know what the Spirit is doing is very sad. Finally, I want to make mention of one last thing. And it is the coming of Christ. It's mentioned four times in 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 2. He says in verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? It is not you. That's the first time he mentions this concept of Jesus coming back. Look at chapter 3. It was in the verse we just read to start the service. Verse 13. So that He may establish your heart blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Look at chapter 4. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then finally he says it right towards the end of the epistle in verse 23 of chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now why are these verses so important when talking about the deity of Christ? Well, when important rulers like the emperor visited a city, it was referred to as the the coming. The parousia is the Greek word. And that's the word they would use when uh, some type of important ruler was coming to that particular city. The Thessalonians, you know, because of their strategic place and their importance in the empire, uh, would have known well and seen this term four times would have been saying something to them. Elaborate ceremonies and honors were required whenever this parousia was going to be occurring for one of the earthly rulers. But here's the thing. These rulers were seen as manifestations of deity. Around 30 B.C. is when, when uh, you have the, the, the uh, emperor cult basically begins and a godlike status, really starting with Julius Caesar at his death, was given to the emperors. And so this term would call to their mind the idea that not just a ruler was coming, but a divine ruler was coming. He was about to visit. And four times, over and over, Paul is saying, chapter 2, Jesus is coming. Chapter 3, Jesus is coming. Chapter 4, Jesus is coming. Chapter 5, Jesus is coming. Emphasizing to them... Look, you might have some earthly ruler Thessalonians coming, but you got the real ruler coming back. 
And he really is God. You got this emperor over here who has this godlike status, and he might visit your city and you might roll out the red carpet. But I want to make sure you realize of the true leader, the true ruler, the true king that you have. And he really is divine, and he really is coming for you. Think about that for a moment. We need to be reminded of this. That the coming of our real Lord lies in our future. And here's the thing, friends. When we talk about Jesus and our belief in Him, we need to realize a few things. Look, Listen, right and wrong is built into our moral conscience. God is gracious to do that when you think about it. We feel bad for doing the wrong. Even unbelievers do. But did you know if you do bad enough, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, you want to know what happens? Those bad feelings start to subside. Those bad feelings can even go away. Look at, look at 1 Timothy. It's just one, uh, two books later. First and Second Thessalonians, and then we come to 1 Timothy. It says now, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So they got consciences, but they're seared. What's a seared conscience? Have you ever gotten like a really bad burn? And then it ended up, you know, with uh, a really bad scar. <clears throat> what happens on that, on that part of your body when you get that, the searing, so to speak? You get burned real bad, you get the scarring. What happens to that where it's been seared? There's no feeling, right? You got to, you know, poke a little needle right there. There's no sensation. There's no feeling. A seared conscience no longer accuses you. We see something similar. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 2. Verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Did you catch that about the conscience? It can accuse them or excuse them. It bears witness to them. And I want to emphasize to us today, listen, <clears throat> we, don't, we don't love God because we're good. And we don't love God uh, because we're educated. We don't love God simply because we live in America. Uh, we love Him because He first loved us. And we love Him because He gives Himself to us through His Son. 
And yes, you know what? We need to know Him. We need to know Him. Not just what He commands, not just uh, what He wants us to do. Listen, um, if you don't know God, then you're not saved. And being a moral person doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. And being a moral person, it doesn't even mean you're saved. Listen, there's many nice and fine uh, people who have not trusted in Christ for their salvation. Friends, they're not saved. They're going to hell. And we're not just trying to be good, nice, moral people. That, that's not really what Christianity is about. That might be a slice of it. We're followers of Jesus. But there are many nice moral people out there who aren't followers of Jesus. And we can, we can trick ourselves and, and, and give a, a false gospel to other people if we're not careful, if we just emphasize uh, the commands of what God wants us to do, all these do's and don'ts. Those are there, but we need to be careful when we emphasize certain things about Christianity. God is concerned about our hearts. He's concerned about the inner. We can have all sorts of outward, great, amazing moral actions. Those don't save us. Those are the outworking of what God has already done inside of us. But God is not just looking for nice, little, fine, good-acting people. He's looking for people of his own that will seek him and forsake all else. But we have to be careful of, of communicating a message to ourselves, uh, to our kids, to our neighbors, that if you're, if you're good, then you're saved. Now, if you're saved, I believe you'll be good. But being good doesn't save you. The second thing is that we have to make sure we're not believing just because it makes us feel good. And there's, there's a lot of false Christianity out there that puts emphasis on this will make you feel good. Now, I want to be clear. Your, your faith at times, your faith in Christ... I mean, you're going to be elated in your walk with the Lord. You'll feel on top of the world at times. But at times, you're going to crash and hit rock bottom. You're not going to be feeling so great. But, but we don't believe in things because of how they make us feel. I'm concerned that sometimes that message goes out, though. Like, trust in Christ, and, and everything, he's going to just make everything amazing and great for you. There's, there's an element of truth in that. That's why it's easy to just to tell people that. Because I believe you trust in Christ, and he will make things amazing and great for you maybe not in this life but for sure in the life to come and i do believe that whatever you're dealing with and the struggles you're going through i believe he says he can you know take my burden jesus has a burden but i believe whatever you're dealing with like as a per person that got saved said like they got saved and, and moments later like man i feel like this huge burden was lifted off me yeah because they had the burden of the world and sin and, and the devil himself and they took that burden off and took on the burden of Christ. Well, yeah, that's going to feel like an amazing thing to do that, which it is. But we don't believe in things because of how they make us feel. I mean, think of uh, something like, um, you know, shots that you get at the doctor. I mean, you're going to be like, oh, I don't believe in shots. And they make me feel horrible. That hurts. You ever try to, you know, go to, I, I, one of the worst things I feel like is, is taking your kids, especially when they're like, you know, really small, to the doctor to get, to get shots? Holy cow. Well, what would you say? 
Well, we're hurting the kid. That's, that's not good. That's not good. No. We know that, that the long-term effect is much better than the short-term pain experienced. You're not going to be feeling good at times in your walk with Christianity. That's just the truth. And you can deal with a whole host of emotions. You know, some people, if you experience bad things in your life, guess what? You're going to have to work through those things. And those are going to be tough things that are going to draw up all sorts of negative emotions. Now, I, I don't believe God wants you stuck in those negative emotions. He wants you to work through it. But when you experience trauma and tragedy and hurt and betrayal, guess what? You're going to have bitterness and anger that you're going to have to work through, that you're going to have to bring before God and let him deal with. And he will deal with it. Friends, God created you for a purpose. And that purpose was not to surf the internet not to binge on Netflix, not to play video games, not to have a, a hobby with a whole room dedicated to it, not to eat out whenever you want, not to sock away as much as possible in your 401k. As I've been emphasizing, the chief end of man, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Friends, some of those things I mentioned um, in their proper uh, context, those are good gifts from God. But what do we do with God's good gifts? We take them and we distort them. We are very good at taking the good things that God gives us and distorting it and using it for sinful ends. Listen, we were created to have fellowship with God himself. As, a, as, a, as an unbeliever at the time, hearing that message, and I know God uses different things to help, help and, and the Spirit decides to to intervene at, at this point or that point, but, but for me, uh, for what, whatever reason, the thing that was key for me is I had all the head knowledge, none of the heart knowledge, was realizing that the creator of the universe wanted to know me and have a relationship with me. Now, he already knew me, but he wanted to know me and, and have a relationship with me, and he wanted me to know him. And he offered that, that friendship what was I really seeing at the time that I couldn't see so clearly, but I, I knew and sensed that God gave me uh, an understanding? It's what Romans talks about, the peace with God. And, and not peace in the sense of, oh, you know, like this euphoric thing. No, I was an enemy of God. What was really blowing my mind that I didn't fully understand at the time, that I was an enemy of God, and he was like, let's be at peace. Let's be at peace. He came to me. I'm the enemy. I'm the one attacking him. And he comes to me with the terms of surrender. It's a complete surrender, right? You've got to surrender it all. But he was willing to offer terms. How does he offer that? Through his son Jesus. The terms of peace. You can have peace with God. And friends, it breaks my heart sometimes when I hear, when I hear people and they, have, uh, they say they believe in God. They say they believe in God. Listen, when we're talking about our faith, we want to make sure that we're not just deists. You know, deists, just, they just believe in God, and, and that's about where it stops. That's it. They know there's a God, they believe in Him, and that's about where it ends. Listen, friends, uh, the Jews, they, they believe in God. Uh, Muslims believe in, in one God, it's a different God, but they believe in God. We need to be careful about what we ascribe to, and we need to be careful what we communicate with others including our children. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me explain. You know, when I reflect on my ministry, 
And I think of, you know, I did youth ministry for many years. I think of the youth, and, and, and then I, I kind of transitioned in, into more adult ministry. I think of the youth, and, and then I think of the adults that um, have come through these doors, and, and, you know, God's providentially moving them on. Some of them are doing great. Some of them are doing okay. Some aren't doing okay, and, and some have fallen away. Um, many of these people, if, if you talk to them, you'll see them on Facebook or whatever, I mean, they'll still say that they, they, they believe in a God, these ones that have fallen away. But, but what I've noticed is, is, is their belief is the same belief of the demons. Think about that. What does James say? The book of James. The demons believe in what do they do? They shudder. Right? They tremble. So demons believe. They believe. They believe there is a God. And guess what? That's kind of what deism is. You believe there is a God. It doesn't do any good for the demons and it doesn't do any good for you if that's where it ends. You believe there's a God. So I think we need to be careful with our language sometimes. We talk about people believing in God, believing in God. You can give the wrong idea if we're not careful. Many of these people would still say they believe in God, but you start talking about Jesus, oh, no Jesus, the Bible, oh, no, no Bible. But there's, a, there's a vague belief, but it looks a lot different to them than what we think of when we talk about believing in God. So we want to be, we want to be careful with our language, and I think it is important to emphasize when we're talking about the gospel to people that we want to emphasize Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have a gospel. You really don't. Try sharing the gospel without referring to the cross, without referring to the grave, without referring to Jesus. You can't. He's integral to it. So when we're talking about people and about trusting, make sure you put emphasis where the trust needs to be. Make sure you put emphasis on Christ. If we don't have Christ, guess what? We don't have Christianity. We got to have Christ in our Christianity. And friends, you know, all these verses that we just looked at about, you know, Jesus coming, you know, the tech, it's interesting because technically it was always about when you talked about the coming, uh, the, the, the Romans and, and any of the New Testament readers would have understood the coming. They wouldn't have thought of Jesus coming back, not in that technical sense. Because the, when, when, the, when there was a coming of a ruler, it was in all the pomp and circumstance, roll out the red carpet. Did that happen when Jesus was here the first time? No. No. It was like, there's, there's kind of like, he was like the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about. So he came humble. No, no acclamation. No rewards. Ro- no red carpet rolled out for him. Grew up humbly. So, we need to realize we do have a Jesus that is going to be coming as the scriptures say, the parousia. Why is that important? Because I'm concerned some of us here, right here in this room, we're not ready. We're not ready. And we've hardened our hearts. We've hardened our hearts. As believers, can we harden our hearts as believers? Yeah, right? We can harden our hearts. And we've hardened our hearts. And we need to repent. If we've hardened our hearts, if we've started to let our conscience get seared in some areas, things that we know are wrong, but they're starting to not bother us as much, that's, that's a dangerous sign, friends. It's a dangerous sign where you're at spiritually. 
You know, I was, I was <clears throat> driving home just a couple of days ago, and I was talking to the Lord, and I was just, I was like, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry, and I was, you know, I was, I was in my mind, I was using those words, I'm sorry, and I was saying, I know I'm sorry about, about these thoughts, and I'm sorry about my, my motive here, and, and I kind of stopped in the middle of it, I think, you know, the Holy Spirit was like pricking my conscience, because I realized, I realized I had the, right, the wrong mindset. Because my mindset was like, like, I'm sorry about this, the end. You know? Like, I'm sorry, and, and it's just, I'm not saying I'm going to continue in that way, Lord, but the Holy Spirit pricked my conscience. It was like, you need to repent of those things and forsake that and make a conscious effort to stop thinking that way, to stop having that attitude in these situations. Just, just going through the I'm sorry. Like, that's why when I when I talk with people about like truly seeking forgiveness just from one another, but like I'm sorry can mean uh, like a hundred different things. I'm sorry because I got caught, right? I'm sorry, but I'm not changing. I mean, it can mean so many different things. When we talk about coming before the Lord, we want to acknowledge our sin, confess that it's wrong, and then repent of it. We want to forsake our sin, and I realized in that moment that I didn't have the right mindset. When you think about repentance, actually, when you, when you parse that word in the Greek, it, it actually has more to do with, with the mindset that follows in action. So we need to have that mindset of, like, not just I'm sorry. No, like, Lord, I confess my sin, state it. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I repent of that. I forsake that sin. The, the word for us is not I'm sorry, but I repent. And friends, let me tell you this. The devil will do whatever he can to trick you into thinking that sin is good, righteous, fulfilling, satisfying, and great. He will do that. He will do that. Over and over, he's going to try to trick you. You're going to, you're going to see people, even people that are believers, at least they claim to be believers, they're going to be doing all sorts of stuff, stuff that, that, that the Bible clearly shows is sin. And you're going to be... T- Why can they do that, Lord? How can they get away with doing that? that that's the devil tempting you. That's the devil trying to get in there and mess with biblical theology. Friends, it, there's a consequence for our sin. Like, there's, uh, there's an eternal consequence that if we don't trust in Christ with the forgiveness of our sins, we will pay an eternal punishment in hell. There's that. But there's just real-life, earthly consequences for our sin. And if we think we can just sin all willy-nilly and, and, and it's not a big deal, we are fooling ourselves and the devil has you tricked. It, your sin... It affects you, but it affects those around you big time. And I could tell you story after story after story, people didn't think their sin affected them or themselves. And it it, it destroys people, it destroys families, it destroys churches. Sin destroys. It destroys. So that's why if you're in sin, if you're not walking with the Lord... Even if it's a, a small area that you haven't given over to him, you need to repent of that. Not the I'm sorry, but the I repent. 
a forsaking of that sin. If the question is, how long can I get away with this? Then you're in trouble. That is the attitude that will truly end up damning you. Friends, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Today. You know what? Today is also the day of repentance. And some of us need to check our hearts. We need to check our hearts for where we're at before the Lord. And we need to repent. And we need to get right with Him. You know, the amazing thing is, God is quick to forgive. He's very quick. He's very quick to restore. Our sin, it it breaks the enjoyment of our fellowship with Him. But He is quick to restore that. He's quick to do it. He, He doesn't hold you at arm's length. You're holding yourself, really. You're the one that's kept away from the Lord because of your sin. But he is like the father of the prodigal son, eagerly waiting for you to return, to come back. Eagerly looking out the window for you to come back. So I encourage you, if that's you, small or big, like to return to the Lord, to make that right to be restored to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are quick to forgive, that Your mercies are never-ending, that Your grace is never-ending, that the blood of Your Son can cover any sin. None is too great. And Lord, you know the hearts of the people here. You know exactly where they're at. No one else does. And I pray you'd speak to people's hearts now. Speak to them clearly. And Lord, whatever they might need to confess to you, they would do so. They would get right in their hearts with you now. Not, and I'm sorry, but I repent. And Father, you are good to, to pick us up time and time again when we, when we trip up, when we fall, when we're in the muck and the mire, Lord. You pick us up, you clean us up. And we thank you for that, Lord. Do that today for some of your children here. Touch hearts. And change hearts. For your glory, Lord. Amen.